Hello, I'm Ross Royden, the Vicar of Christchurch Kowloon Tong here in Hong Kong. Thank you for listening to my podcast. The podcast this week is for the second Sunday before Lent, what used to be known as Sexagesima. The transcript of the talk can be found on my website, rossroyden.com. It is also posted in the Christchurch Facebook group. Please share the link to the podcast with anyone who you think may find it of interest. The next podcast will be for the Sunday next before Lent, what used to be known as Quinquagesima. I wish you and your family God's blessing and peace in the week ahead. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it is written in St. Luke's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning to read at the 22nd verse. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they put out, and while they were sailing, he fell asleep. A gale swept down on the lake, and the boat was filling with water, and they were in danger. They went to him and woke him up, shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he woke up and rebuked the wind and the raging waves. They ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? They were afraid and amazed, and said to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? This is the Gospel of the Lord. In our Gospel reading for the third Sunday before Lent, we read firstly of Jesus' selection of the twelve disciples who were to be his apostles, and then secondly, the introduction to Jesus' teaching of the disciples, which is commonly known as the Sermon on the Plain. This actually takes place on a plateau on a mountain and is St. Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Since then, much has happened in the Gospel. After returning to Capernaum, Jesus heals the centurion's son from a distance, praising the centurion's faith as he does so. Jesus also visits a town called Nain, which is about nine miles south of Nazareth, where he restores a widow's only son to life, while the dead son's funeral is taking place. Jesus answers questions about his identity from John the Baptist, who is in prison, and who wants to know whether Jesus really is the one whom they have been waiting for. Jesus tells those whom John has sent on his behalf to report back what they see. Jesus speaks highly of John to those who are with him, but tells them that though John is a great prophet, anyone in the kingdom of God is greater than him. Then, at dinner with a Pharisee called Simon, Jesus pronounces forgiveness on a woman with the reputation of being a sinner. She is weeping at his feet. Jesus criticizes Simon the Pharisee for criticizing the woman as he does so. It is those who have been forgiven much who love the most. St. Luke describes how Jesus goes on tour through the cities and villages, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. St. Luke gives us an interesting insight into the tour arrangements. St. Luke tells us that the twelve go with him, but so too do a group of women, including St. Mary Magdalene, who, we are told, provide for Jesus out of their resources. The women are not described as disciples, but they do finance their work. 
As an example of Jesus' teaching, St. Luke gives an account of the parable of the sower, together with Jesus' explanation of why he teaches in parables, as well as an explanation of the parable of the sower itself. Jesus closed his teaching of his disciples on the mountain by telling them they should not only call him Lord, but also do what he says. St. Luke reports how Jesus again stresses the importance of both hearing and listening carefully to what he says. Then, when his mother and brothers come to see Jesus, Jesus emphasizes this message by telling everyone that his true family is everyone who hears the word of God and does it. Being with Jesus must have been quite a roller coaster ride. You never quite knew what he was going to do or say next. Whatever else being with Jesus was, it certainly wasn't boring. Throughout St. Luke's account so far, we have been reading how Jesus teaches the importance of having faith. Jesus draws everyone's attention to the faith of the centurion, for example, and he tells the woman who comes to see him at Simon the Pharisee's house that it is her faith that has saved her. Faith involves both hearing and doing Jesus' words. It is not, however, quite so easy as it sounds. This brings us to our Gospel reading. It is St. Luke's account of the calming of the storm. We read St. Mark's account of the calming of the storm last year for the third Sunday after Trinity. I don't want to repeat everything I said then, but I would encourage you to read the transcript or listen to the sermon online. The story is very well known. Jesus, wanting to go from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other, gets into a boat with his disciples and tells them to set sail. Jesus falls asleep as they are sailing across the lake. Suddenly a storm sweeps down on the lake and the boat starts to sink. Seeing they are in danger, the disciples in a state of panic wake Jesus up shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing. Jesus wakes up and rebukes the wind and waves, restoring calm. But he does not leave it there. He asks his disciples simply, where is your faith? The conclusion to the story is important. St. Luke writes, they were afraid and amazed and said to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? What are we to make of this story? It is even harder for us to believe that Jesus could calm the storm than it was for the disciples. The disciples, in common with most people in the ancient world, believed that such things could happen. For Jews, God was the one who did amazing things. Their escape from slavery in Egypt was because of the amazing intervention of God in parting the Red Sea. The Hebrew scriptures just take it for granted that God can work what we call miracles. Pagans, too, believed that their gods could work wonders. The physical world wasn't a closed system to people, and neither was it all there was. The spiritual world of the gods was as real to them as the physical world. It was still amazing when miracles took place, but there was no philosophical reason why they could not happen. To put it another way, their worldview allowed for such things. Ours, however, does not. 
Even if we believe that Jesus did indeed calm the storm, we don't quite know how to fit it in with what we know of the laws of nature and our understanding of the physical world around us. Explaining such things is a bit embarrassing, to be honest. Best then, not even to try. Or so we think. This is why many, if not most, sermons on this passage will ignore the issue of whether Jesus really did calm the wind and the waves on the Sea of Galilee, and will focus instead on the meaning of the story for us today. Needless to say, its meaning as far as preachers will be concerned doesn't have anything to do with changing the weather. So rather than discussing what actually happened, the story will be treated as more of a parable that teaches us about the need for faith. The Gospel writers would be the first to admit that Jesus' miracles have a deeper, even a symbolic meaning. They would not, however, see such a symbolic meaning as an alternative to taking the story literally. Not taking the story literally, of course, totally misses the point of the story. It is precisely because Jesus can calm the storm and do other equally amazing things that we can be sure he is someone we can have faith in. In St. John's Gospel, Jesus says to the crowds, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. We, however, claim to believe that the Father is in Jesus. It's just his works we are not sure about. And so, in many sermons, the storm on the Sea of Galilee will be seen as a metaphor for the storms of life that come down on us all without warning at various times in our lives, often when we least expect them to. The message of the story on this understanding of it, then, is that we should have faith that Jesus can calm the storms in our lives. Preachers will tell their congregations that when we are going through difficult times, such as sickness, tragedy, or bereavement, it may sometimes feel as if Jesus is asleep and doesn't care. We too may think we are going to perish. But, they will tell us, what we need is to hold on to our faith in Jesus, and he will calm the storm. It is a very encouraging message, and one that is designed to give us hope. There are, however, real problems with it, apart, that is, from the fact that all too often, Jesus doesn't calm the storms in our lives. Indeed, sometimes he seems to be the cause of them. While we may think that the story as metaphor approach to St. Luke's account of the calming of the storm gets us out of having to discuss the difficult issue of whether Jesus changed the weather, it in fact lands us with even more difficult issues to deal with. After all, if we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, which after all is a belief that is pretty fundamental to our faith, then in theory at least, God should be able to have some influence on the earth's weather systems. Believing that God is the creator of all means we can at least explain why we believe Jesus could calm the wind and waves. But how do we explain that Jesus doesn't calm the storms of life? How do we explain that believers get sick, are killed in accidents and disasters, suffer bereavement, and all the pain and problems that are common to humanity? How can our Father allow such things to happen to us and do nothing about them? 
The parable approach would be great if its message were true. The truth is that it doesn't seem to be. Explaining why God doesn't calm these storms of suffering is much harder than explaining how Jesus as the Son of God is able to calm the weather. So rather than finding we have escaped the problem of the storm, the parable approach lands lands us in a veritable storm of questions and problems. We need to try another approach to the story. I want then to approach the story by looking at three things that are said in the story. Firstly, the disciples' question at the end of the story. Who then is this? Who then is this? St. Luke, in describing the disciples' reaction after Jesus has calmed the storm, writes, They were afraid and amazed and said to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? The biggest problem with our worldview isn't that we don't believe in miracles, it's that we do believe in ourselves. That is to say, we think that everything needs to be about us. So of course we think that Jesus doing something amazing should be to show us what he wants to do for us. St. Luke's conclusion to the story, however, focuses not on what Jesus can do for us, but on Jesus himself. The disciples had been concerned that Jesus didn't care that they were perishing in the storm. At the end of the story, they realize there are more important things to worry about. Jesus challenges them to think about him and who he is. Jesus' works are meant to tell us something about Jesus and about who he is. What matters then is what decision we come to about him and what we decide to do as a consequence. What does or does not happen to us is secondary to this. If this seems a bit hard, then we need to go back to what Jesus said to his disciples on the mountain. Jesus says to them, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. As we saw in the sermon for the third Sunday before Lent, Jesus is telling his disciples that they should prioritize their relationship with him. Who then is this? The disciples ask each other. Their worldview may allow for such things to happen. They nevertheless are not used to being part of them when they do. The disciples have heard Jesus preach the good news of the kingdom of God, forgive people's sins and claim authority over the law. They have seen him cast out demons, heal the sick and raise the dead. Now they have seen him calm the very forces of nature itself. Who is this indeed? Everything that they have heard and seen would suggest that they are in the presence of God himself. The scribes and Pharisees ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? It's a good question. The only problem is that Jesus seems to be, well, so human. That was the problem that people had had, had at Nazareth. Nothing about Jesus and his behavior growing up led anyone who knew him growing up to think that Jesus was anything that a, other than a nice local Jewish lad. 
The disciples were following Jesus because they believed he was something more than this. But that more didn't mean that they thought he was anything other than an exceptional human being. Jesus was, after all, asleep in the boat, just as you would expect anyone to be after a hard day's work. After Jesus has calmed the storm, however, they are not so sure. Who then is this? They ask. Jesus didn't fit any of the normal categories. He still doesn't. It sometimes amuses me the way the New Testament scholars hunt around for first century categories to use in an attempt to explain where Jesus fits in his historical context. And some of the categories have some truth in them. Rabbi, prophet, messiah, charismatic wonder worker. Jesus is all of these things, but he is more. The church took some time to work out its answer to the question of who Jesus is. They needed to find a way to explain how Jesus could be at the same time both human and divine. How could he be asleep in the boat, tired out one moment, and then calming the wind and waves the next? However, having settled on an explanation of the Council of Chalcedon in 451, one that affirmed both his humanity and his divinity, it was to be his divinity which dominated the church's thinking about Jesus in the years ahead. Jesus was the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The divine Jesus became remote. He was one of us in name only. It has been partly in reaction to this that the church in recent years has preferred to stress Jesus' humanity. We have emphasized those aspects of his character that demonstrate just how human he is. We see him as in every way like us, getting hungry, tired, sad, angry, and with all the other appetites and emotions common to humans. We find the church's doctrine of the two natures of Christ, human and divine, and talk of his divinity seems to make him less human. So we have stopped talking of Jesus in this way. We focus on his humanity and quietly ignore his divinity. But the church's belief in Jesus' two natures and talk of his, of his divinity, how he is God incarnate, doesn't make Jesus less human, nor does talking about his humanity make him less divine. He is both. Jesus is unique. That's rather the point. Jesus isn't just a teacher, prophet or charismatic figure, no matter how special. He is the Word made flesh. Who then is this? The one who created the forces of nature can calm them. We need in our own day to rediscover the divine Jesus, not at the expense of his humanity, but so we can more properly appreciate it. And having rediscovered it, we too should feel a sense of fear and amazement. Secondly, Jesus said to his disciples, where is your faith? Where is your faith? So what about the storms that hit us without warning in life? The message of this story isn't that Jesus stops the storms coming, nor even that he calms them when they do, but that when they come, we should have faith. This is not faith that Christ will make them go away, but faith that Christ will help us to get through them. Our faith is not meant to calm the storm. It is meant to calm us.
This will only happen when we are sure that Jesus is the one who has power over the wind and waves and everything else in this world. This is why the most important thing for us to do is to answer the question, who then is this for ourselves? If we don't think he is the one who can calm the weather, then we do indeed have a problem. All too often our faith in Jesus is a bit like a cuddly toy something to hold on to when we get scared in the darkness while knowing it's really just a toy. Our faith in Jesus needs to be real and rooted in our knowledge of who he really is. Our faith in Christ is faith in one who has authority over all things, knowing that everything, including the darkness, is subject to him and that nothing can happen outside his will means we know we are not at the mercy of forces beyond his control. Faith knows that all things, including the bad things, all work together for good to those who love God. We know that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, believing this when we are suffering, scared and sorrowful is not easy. But the right question to ask ourselves when we experience pain and hardship is Jesus' question to his disciples. We need to ask ourselves, where is our faith? Not where is our faith to make it go away, but where is our faith to keep going? Where is our faith to believe that God knows best, has a plan and will work all things out? Too many want nothing to do with God in their normal everyday life, but then when trouble comes, want to be able to turn to him for help. But faith doesn't work like that. Faith isn't just for when we encounter storms in life. Faith must be our life. Faith is not something that can be kept in the cupboard for a rainy day, something we can turn to when we don't know what else to do. Faith is about a relationship with God in Christ. A relationship that not only helps us through the troubles and storms of this life, but which becomes stronger because of them. Thirdly, the disciples' words to Jesus, Master, Master, we are perishing. Master, Master, we are perishing. Although the disciples didn't realize it at the time, they were exactly right in thinking they were perishing. But it was not the storm that was their biggest threat. St. Mark has the disciples' words to Jesus as a question. St. Mark writes that the disciples asked Jesus, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? It is because Jesus cares that they are perishing that he is there with them in the boat and why he will go on to do what it is that he came to do what his father sent him to do. St. John writes, For this is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. St. Paul writes to the believers in the church of Corinth that he has passed on to them as of first importance what he also has received, namely, that Christ died for our sins. The idea that Christ came to die for our sins and that this was what his coming was all about is one that is now often seen as being about just one aspect of what Jesus came to do. 
or which is even an idea that has been dropped altogether. And yet it is of course true that Jesus is concerned with more than just our sins, but he is not concerned with less. Many in the church want to focus on what they see as Jesus' example and teaching, that is, on how we should live our lives to make a difference for good. For example, by working for such things as justice, equality, diversity and inclusivity here and now in this world. But we cannot do any of these things until our sin has been forgiven and Christ has given us new life. Instead of talking about sin, many want to concentrate, concentrate instead on God's inclusive love for all and on how he welcomes all people to come to him. God does indeed love and welcome all to come to him. But he wants them to come to him so that they can find forgiveness of their sins in Christ who died for all our sins. And that cannot happen while we insist on claiming we have no sin. St. John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We cannot follow Christ's example and teaching while we persist in our sin. We cannot live good lives while we are slaves to sin. And it is human sin, our sin, that causes injustice and inequality in our world. We have to face the reality of our predicament and we have to tell people the reality of theirs. The good news is that in Christ and in Christ alone, there is forgiveness and hope. This may not be a message either we or those we tell it to will want to hear. We may prefer what sounds to us a more positive message and faith brings much that is positive and life-affirming. But we have to first face the truth that we are perishing. St. Paul writes, For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I am very conscious that talk of sin and its consequences, and not least the fact that we are perishing because of it, is something that is hard to get people to take seriously. In our own day especially, it sounds like foolishness to most people, and that includes, sadly, many in the church. We can see the effects of sin all around us in broken lives and communities, but we are unable and unwilling to see it is our sin that is the cause. It is because such a message is seen as foolishness that we are tempted as believers to look for a more positive message to offer people instead. It is a temptation we must resist. Our task is to tell people the truth of the gospel, and that includes telling them the truth about themselves. We can do this best by telling them the truth about Christ and the forgiveness that he offers. For it is only as we see him as he really is that we see ourselves as we really are. The disciples were afraid and amazed by Jesus. As his disciples today, we too need to be afraid and amazed by him. For it is in fear and amazement that we will find the faith we need to face the storms of life and to reach out to those who are perishing around us, reach out to them, that is, with the good news of forgiveness in Christ. May our Lord give us the courage and faith to do so.
Amen. Let us confess our faith in Almighty God as we say together, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit he became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. In the power of the Spirit and in union with Christ, let us pray to the Father. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you promise through your Son, Jesus Christ, to hear us when we pray in faith. Strengthen Andrew, our Archbishop, Timothy, our Bishop, and all your church in the service of Christ, that those who confess your name may be united in your truth, live together in your love, and reveal your glory in the world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Bless and guide our leaders, give wisdom to all in authority, and direct this community and all nations in the ways of justice and of peace, that we may honour one another and seek the common good. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Give grace to us, our families and friends, and to all our neighbours, that we may serve Christ in one another and love as he loves us. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Comfort and heal all those who suffer in body, mind or spirit. Give them courage and hope in their troubles and bring them the joy of your salvation. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Hear us as we remember those who have died in the faith of Christ. According to your promises, grant us with them a share in your eternal kingdom. Rejoicing in the fellowship of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, and of all your saints, we commend ourselves and the whole creation to your unfailing love. Merciful Father, accept these prayers for the sake of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. We are the body of Christ. In the one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Let us then pursue all that makes for peace and builds up our common life. The peace of the Lord be always with you.
Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness we have this bread to offer, which earth has given and human hands have made. It will become for us the bread of life. Blessed be God forever. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation. Through your goodness we have this wine to offer, fruit of the vine and work of human hands. It will become for us the cup of salvation. Blessed be God forever. Yours, Lord, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the splendor and the majesty. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. All things come from you and of your own do we give you. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Father, we give you thanks and praise through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, your living word through whom you have created all things, who was sent by you in your great goodness to be our Saviour. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he took flesh. As your Son, born of the Blessed Virgin, he lived on earth and went about among us. He opened wide his arms for us on the cross. He put an end to death by dying for us and revealed the resurrection by rising to new life. So he fulfilled your will and won for you a holy people. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we proclaim your great and glorious name, forever praising you and saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Lord, you are holy indeed, the source of all holiness. Grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit and according to your holy will, these gifts of bread and wine may be to us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ who in the same night that he was betrayed took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave you thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Great is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And so, Father, calling to mind his death on the cross, 
His perfect sacrifice made once for the sins of the whole world, rejoicing in his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension and looking for his coming in glory. We celebrate this memorial of our redemption. As we offer you this, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, we bring before you this bread and this cup, and we thank you for counting us worthy to stand in your presence and serve you. Send the Holy Spirit on your people and gather into one in your kingdom, all who share this one bread and one cup, so that we in the company of the Blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, and all the saints may praise and glorify you forever through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by whom and with whom and in whom, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all honour and glory be yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. Amen. As our Saviour taught us, so we pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. We break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Though we are many, we are one body, because we all share in one bread. Jesus, Lamb of God, have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Jesus, Redeemer of the world, grant us your peace. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Happy are those who are called to his supper. Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Draw near with faith. Receive the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he gave for you and his blood, which he shed for you. Eat and drink in remembrance that he died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. We do not presume to come to this, your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord, whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body and our souls washed through his most precious blood and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us.
Let us pray. God, our creator, by your gift, the tree of life was set at the heart of the earthly paradise and the bread of life at the heart of your church. May we be nourished at your table on earth, be transformed by the glory of the Saviour's cross and enjoy the delights of eternity through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Father of all, we give you thanks and praise that when we were still far off, you met us in your Son and brought us home. Dying and living, he declared your love, gave us grace and opened the gate of glory. May we who share Christ's body live his risen life. We who drink his cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope you have set before us, so we and all your children shall be free, and the whole earth live to praise your name, through Christ our Lord. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you now and always. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.